Hello, everybody. I hope that you are all safe and well. After a short break, the podcast is back. And today we have a very special episode. Previous two-time guest and good friend of the podcast, David Shukri, will be taking over as host. And he'll be speaking with commercial portrait and wedding photographer, Tommy Reynolds. I'm delighted to be joined today by Tommy Reynolds. Thank you so much for for being on, Tommy. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Looking through your website, there is a huge range of work there. So tell us about how you got started in photography. I got started um, way back in in, in my teens. The first time I picked up a camera was uh, when I was doing music photography. I kind of wanted to... uh, thought that that was going to be my, my main thing was doing music photography. So I would go along to friends gigs and in exchange for a free entry, I would be providing their photography. And that's how, uh, the, and that's how my confidence started to build because my, when I started, I wasn't very confident, but what was really lovely and beautiful about having this thing that was hanging around my neck was it actually gave me the confidence to walk up to strangers because because the camera, it gave me the excuse to do so. So mm-hmm. not only would I be photographing my friend's band, but I would then photograph the other acts that were there and walk up to them and say, hey, my name's Tommy. I photographed your band. Um, here they are. You're welcome to use them. Maybe give me a tag on Facebook, on my Facebook page. <laughs> and um, and that and that's kind of how it started. And that's how I built new relationships and was able to network because I had that excuse hanging from around my neck. So yeah, photography really kind of helped bring me out of my shell in my teens when I started doing music photography and then eventually just transitioned into doing more portraiture with bands and artists, musicians, because I kind of wanted to get out of the photography pit and have a more one-on-one time with them because then it feels a bit more special rather than sharing a pit with sometimes up to 10 other photographers getting the same similar shot. So, but that's how it kind of started was music side and then just slowly progressed into what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have to say, I think the first time I came across your work was was via your YouTube channel, and you you've carved out um, what seems to be a pretty envious space uh, within <laughs> our industry. I mean, your your YouTube has got your your over fifty thousand subscribers, and uh, and lots of that good stuff on there is um, you know is musician and music based uh, shoots, which is which is absolutely lovely. Now, would you say that the channel has been something that's boosted your photography career or do you think it's the photography that's driven the channel or some, or somewhere in between? Oh no, David, I can tell you, f- uh, flat out the YouTube, it definitely has progressed my career. And, and I think it's an interesting question why that is because YouTube is primarily the creative process and sharing how I've done something. Whereas I think it'd be fair to say that Instagram is more showing off maybe the final product of what you've done. And I I don't know what it is, but I, I just get such a joy, passion, sharing the creative process on my YouTube. And I maybe that shows. And that, I mean, that's how it originally started. The reason I started my YouTube just to begin with was I just wanted to an archive. I wanted to be able to do personal projects and get my friend along to come and film them just so that we could say, this is what we did and mm-hmm. this is how we did it. But I was certainly not prepared for the response that I got from showing off the creative process. So for example, the first video that I posted, maybe say a th- few days before that, I shared the images from that shoot, which had a fair response, 
But it wasn't until I shared the behind the scenes from that same shoot that the engagement just skyrocketed exponentially. And I like to think, I think, I think, I think (laughs) that people maybe enjoy how I shoot something more than what I shoot. It's that creative Mm. process that kind of you can carve out your USP in the way you shoot something. Because we all know that you take two or three photographers to photograph the same model and you'll get different results. And that's always an interesting thought, but it's because of how they approach it and what they do that makes them unique. So that's kind of how it started. I veered off a little bit. I apologize, but yeah, that's kind of how I started with the YouTube. It just started as an archive and it's been responsible for clients finding me literally via my YouTube channel. Cause I always ask, how did you find me? And some, some would say, oh, for YouTube. And I just never thought that that would be a way that I would gain work was from YouTube. But I like to think it's because of uh, how I share something. And also because I usually provide that as a deliverable as well is a behind the scenes video as well mm. as photos. Um, mm, yeah. That- yeah, that was actually something that I was going to talk to you about um, later on, but we'll come to it now as, you, as you've raised it. And in one of your uh, most recent videos, the last month or two, uh, and it's, I think it's probably the one that spoke to me most clearly, um, was the one uh, about sharing behind the scenes information, why that's a useful thing, uh, you know, especially for creative professionals. And there will definitely be people out there who feel protective about their own process. Mm. And um, certainly from my point of view, people often think it's a bit weird when I'm happy to speak freely about what happens behind the scenes. And, you know, other photographers uh, will say things like, oh, you know, if you tell everybody how you do it, are you going to learn all your business? Uh, are you going to lose lose all your business or whatever? And, you know, obviously that's complete nonsense. But why is f- uh, from photographer to photographer or from creative to cre- creative, why is it so important to to share that uh, that behind the scenes info? There's so many benefits why I like sharing the behind the scenes. Uh, first of all, it's just an extension of my creative fulfillment. I have, so I've got a background in filmmaking, which is probably why I have such an interest in sharing that creative process. And I generally edit all of the videos as well. So obviously I will not film it, but I like to edit it. So it still feels like it's come from my hand. And, and there's a story there. There's, there's context there. I like to think of a behind the scenes video as in a movie, it's the, it's the act one and act two, and your imagery is act three, the final product. And if you're just sharing the act three, I want to know how you got there. When I look at other people's uh, work or other people's YouTube videos, I'm, I'm keen. I'm, I'm, I, I grew up with DVD extras. I'm, I, mm-hmm. I would always buy the two disc edition because I would be fascinated in learning how they did it. And I know for some people that kind of ruins the illusion, especially if in film, but I appreciate it more. I can empathize more with the creative or the filmmaker or the photographer knowing the steps they needed to do to get to that product. And that for me, yeah, it's the context. It's that's what provides and that's what, yeah, that's what gets you there. So for me, it's so important. And and on top of all that, there is also a little bit of financial gain as well, because if you can provide video to a client, then the chances are you're going to get a yes because you're providing more deliverables. And we know that video generally does better than mm-hmm. photography in terms of engagement. So if you can provide both, you're laughing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we came to, um, or, or rather I came to thinking about this uh, most clearly. I think it was just kind of coincidence, basically. I got those Austin Cleon books, um, Share Your Work and the... the uh, f- 
obviously I've forgotten the names of the other two books right now, but he, but in these books, he talks about, um, why, why you should basically give everything away or give a lot, give a lot of your information away. And, um, I think that is a scary, uh, I think that's a, a scary thought for people, um, like me and, and maybe you as well, who, um, uh, you know, some of their business comes from teaching or training or, you know, just earning money in that way. And, um, just to come back to what I said before, so, you know, some people think if I, you know, if somebody asks me about how, how I do my light setups, for example, and I explain that to them, you know, that I'm never going to make another pound for the rest of my life training people or that the, you know, the magic has gone or the illusion has gone or whatever. And in my experience, that absolutely hasn't been the case at all. I find that the more, the more stuff that I give away, the more information stuff that I give away, the more people will come back and they, uh, you know, there's a, there's an element of trust involved. And so if mm -hmm. you have a, th if you have like a paid service or whatever it might be, then they will very often come back to you for that. Not everybody, of course, there will be people that take all the time. Um, but it's, I think that's one of the most interesting phenomena about the, uh, the current climate that we're, that creative people are in. Mm. I mean, obviously there's so much content out there, so much amazing quality filmmaking and photography and all of the other creative things that people do, um, that it's not, uh, it, it's not sort of simply enough to simply create, uh, you know, work as in, you know, portraits or whatever it might be, um, that there is a, that huge appetite for, you know, for what, what goes into the sausage or whatever, you know, whatever the expression is. <laughs> I like, um, like the Cleon reference there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, but he makes, a, he makes a great point, isn't he? And one of my favorite anecdotes in one of his books, um, which I probably said in that video you mentioned, but I'd love to say it for, for the viewers here, uh, to give you an idea of why context is important. And he just, he said it so beautifully. So let's imagine you're in an art, um, art gallery. Okay. You've walked in, and you're, you're an art buyer, so you know your stuff. And you look at two paintings on the wall and they look identical, even down to the brushstrokes. And it depicts a beautiful sailing boat on sunset, quiet, river, uh, quiet, uh, quiet sea. Um, and it's just still and calm and it's beautiful. The colours are so warm and vivid from the sunset. But you look at both paintings and they look exactly the same. So we'll label them painting A and painting B. And you wait for the curator to finally come in so that you can ask the question, sorry, excuse me, what's the difference between these two paintings? He said, oh, well, um, painting uh, A was painted in the 16th century by a very well-known painter by the name of Yada Yada Yada. Oh, wow. Okay. And what about painting B? Well, painting B was uh, a forgery. It's uh, painted by a student last week who wanted to see if he could replicate it. Now, just because they're now, even though they're exactly the same, what one would you rather take home? You'd rather take home painting A, but even though they would look exactly the same. And this is where it comes down to context and the story that you provide with it. And that is what you can provide with your behind the scenes, showing that creative process. You show the build up, the what got you there, the story behind it. And that not only adds the sausage, the meat, <laughs> not only does it add the sausage, but it all can also add value to your work as well, adding that yeah. creative process. And you said it, said it very well as well about giving away that, that stuff. And actually what I've found interestingly is even though you might have a, an online service or an online thing, I know like you have David, where you've got the one like masterclass or the master, the, the uh, cinematic masterclass, 
even though you've got that already available, it still doesn't mean that people aren't going to come to see your in-person workshops as well, because that is a totally different experience as well. So I know that um, I'm going to continue to doing both. I'm going to offer online and both in person because there's more context that you can gain from actually being in person there as well as having it online. So there is no problem at all of, and I don't want to say the word giving away, maybe that's the wrong term, is offering offering value and what you know, sharing what you know. There is nothing, yeah. there's nothing devaluing by doing that. It's the opposite, as you said. I've gained mm. more clients. I've networked more. I've gained more work by giving away free content. There is nothing to be uh, lost. You've only got more stuff to gain by giving your stuff away. Yeah, yeah, and sharing. it does. It does sort of seem topsy turvy, but yeah. I, I think you know certainly for, for for my work, it's it 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 does sort of bear out that if you're if you're generous with people, people are very often generous back to you. I mean, obviously there will always be takers in life, um, but I have found that being generous with people, uh, you know, they they repay it generally or often, shall we say? Yes, hundred percent. Yeah. Anyway, your your portfolio has three main strands, I would say. So your your wedding work, your travel photography, and your what you could call straight up portraiture. And the with, with the portraiture, um, it seems like uh, I mean, obviously you work with with plenty of musicians, and there's lots of you know what we would call commercial portraiture or non civilian portraiture, as I call it. Um, and how do you balance those areas of work, and which is your favourite? If you if you have a favourite. That's a really good question. So naturally, wedding photography for me is seasonal. So from so we're recording this in uh, middle of May. So I'm about to move into the peak time. Well, I say peak time. <laughs> we're obviously in unprecedented times, but we are coming out of COVID. But in a normal time, I would be about to kind of step into the seasonal wedding time. And if I'm being honest at this moment, well, again, in normal times, wedding does earn me more money than portrait does. Even though I have three strands, I'll be straight up that the wedding stuff does earn me more money. And then the portraits can happen all year round. And the uh, and the travel stuff is kind of uh, what I do the least, especially at the moment. But in terms of finding that balance, yeah, it's just all about, um, I've got software that keeps me on track. So I've got a CRM software that called Studio Ninja. There's plenty out there, but this is the one I use. And that keeps me on track, on task with everything I need to do across my three kind of strands that I like to do. What's my favorite? It's a really good question. It Weddings used to be my least favorite, but now I can quite honestly say that they I love them all equally and I love them all equally because I, and that's why I do them. If there was one strand that I didn't, wouldn't enjoy, then I would probably knock it on the head. And I nearly did knock weddings on the head when I was much heavily in the music industry. Um, I think there's a, a bit of a taboo with a photographer who works in the music industry and also shoots weddings. I think it's the same with singers as well. If you're a, a recording artist, but you also sing at weddings, the the music industry almost looks down on you. And that's partly the reason mm -hmm. why I stepped away from the music industry. I was much heavily more involved with it years ago, but I stepped away from it because I just, I really enjoyed weddings but they didn't like me shooting weddings. And at the time, this was years ago now, where naturally at the start of your photography career, you might have all of, the, all of your careers and all of, sorry, all of your strands in one website, like a portfolio website. And there's actually a, a, a story. I, I got the, uh, I got the great opportunity to work with one of Simon Cowell's um, bands 
And I said to the manager of this band, because uh, I knew that Simon Cowell was going to see the images. I said, did you show Simon Cowell the images? And he said, I showed him the images, but I didn't show him your website. And I went, why is, <laughs> why, why is that? And his exact words were, David, was because he would be mortified to know that one of his photographers was a wedding photographer. That's mental. And I was like, whoa. And that was the moment where I decided to separate all of my all of my strands to so separate the wedding work, give it its own website, put the portraits in their own website. And I think what I'm trying to say is if you're a photographer where you're not quite sure yet what your thing is, you're not, maybe you don't want to niche yourself. And I do think particularly in times like these, you don't have to niche yourself. But the important thing is if you're making money from these things, they need to have their own corners of the internet. It's mm -hmm. important that you have your own website for that thing and your own website for that thing. I got married recently and when I was looking for a wedding photographer, I certainly wouldn't have picked a wedding photographer who also shot pets and portraits and landscapes. I just wouldn't have done it. You want someone who appears to be doing only one thing, but if they've got yeah, a great yeah. portfolio, they've got a great portfolio. So yeah, another rant. I'm sorry, David, but I can't kind of was a... Well, I guess on what I'm trying to say is you don't have to limit yourself, but if you're making money from these things, it is important that you separate them out like I do with the weddings and the portraits and also the education as well, like yourself, David. So I've, mm. I've, there's that's kind of another strand. And uh, another interesting thing about my work is I started with portraits and then I went to weddings and then more recently, I now have a website to the education stuff and mm -hmm. kind of affirming my point about it's good to try different things. The portraiture side of my business is actually what earns me the least amount of money now, which, but it's the thing I've started with and what I've been doing the longest. The irony is that the weddings and the education now make me more money than the other things, but they're the two newest things I've done. So yeah, again, I'm just kind of affirming the point that if you're not sure what to do, try multiple things and give them their own corners of the internet because you never know one might overtake the other. Mm, no, I, I I I do agree with that, and I think one one of the the reasons for that is that if anybody, people that want photography and they uh, and if they want the job doing you know to a really nice standard, they know that it's going to be something they're going to have to pay properly for. Mm -hmm. And I think it's never. Uh, I think however you you know however you kind of view it for almost everybody that pays for photography, for them, it's a big investment. So, you know, fine if you shoot for Vogue or Vanity Fair or <laughs> Harper's Bazaar or whatever it might be, then obviously the budgets are pretty big. But if you're, um, you know, if you're producing work for, for example, an opera singer, a freelance opera singer or an actor or, or somebody's wedding, for example, they all want a decent job doing and you know, sometimes the photos are going to earn their money or potentially earn their money if they're publicity shots or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to when it comes to biting the bullet and paying for things, people are always going to pay for somebody they perceive to be a specialist in that thing. So you're yeah. absolutely right saying, you know, if you shoot dogs and cats, um, maybe don't expect to get headshot work from, uh, <laughs> you know, from, a, yeah. from an actor or whatever it might be. Um, let's let, let's come back to your YouTube stuff again, because Hmm. Um, I absolutely love talking about it. Um, with you, with the YouTube stuff that I've seen of yours, you work with a really good team, um, both on the the creative and the technical sides. Yeah. Um, so obviously, there's plenty going on behind the scenes with uh, you know people that film your stuff and you know people that you can see in the shoots themselves. What's your approach to working with those teams, and do you have a regular roster of people, or is it changeable? 
Yeah. Um, I generally, I like to work with the same team. I am a firm believer that you are only as good as your team. So I do try as best I can to get the same uh, people involved in my shoots. So for example, Michael Mowbray, he's my film guy. He's my go-to guy. And I think why why it's important to work with the same team, especially if it's a videographer um, doing actually filming your behind the scenes video, his style is my brand. The way he decides to shoot something, because it's obviously the same person, so he'll have his style, but his style has become effectively my brand, if that makes sense. Mm. Which is why then you have consistency there. It appears more professional. Occasionally my sister will step in, but because she's my sister and so invested in my work, I hope, and um, even if she has a different camera, she can still emulate similarly to uh, Mike's style to keep within the brand. And then in terms of assistance, again, I'll still try and keep the same assistance because they know my gear so well and there, mm. there is nothing to be snooted at at an assistant. I, it almost doesn't sound good enough, that word. It almost sounds lower. Like you, you want to call them like a chief assistant or head something because it sounds lower than what it is, but there's so they're so valuable. So for example, I often have, um, my friends or Dan or Steven or Graham, they're kind of my go-to because they know my gear so well. They know how I like to shoot. They know roughly where I would want to start my lighting setup at maybe a 45 degree thing, even down to the left side. I pref prefer having it camera left model, right? Um, just little things like that. I can turn around and it's, it's already set up. So yeah, I do try and use the same team and you're only good as your team and, um, make them part of it. The tethering process, as we know, is great for the model and for yourself, but it's also great for the team around you as well, making them feel a part of it. Your tether stations is the center of everything. And it's not just for you and the model. It's for your team as well, for your creative team. If you've got makeup artists and hairstylists as well, that will be something that I will change because I like to work with different people. But in terms of assistants and cameramen, they'll rel relatively stay the same to keep the same mm. brand. That point you made about video, you know, if you're if you're doing the kind of work that you do, I hadn't actually considered the point you made about their video being part of your brand. That's it. That's an incredibly uh, kind of salient point because with, I think being, you know, being a photographer or creative or whatever, I think we tend to think that our, everybody is going to view our work, the work that we are producing as the, um, the point of everything and, you know, view things in that kind of slightly self-centered way. But I think, um, you know, as you say there, it's so important to, uh, for the way that it's presented for the, you know, the video basically. And I hadn't, I genuinely hadn't ever considered that point uh, about the branding and the identity and all of that kind of thing. That's um, that's very interesting, actually. I was just going to say, so I I had a um, I had another videographer step in when Mike couldn't, and this one example, he filmed everything on a gimbal, which is nothing wrong with that, but it was a subtle difference because Mike doesn't often use a gimbal and just little things like that. How, and obviously, and it was a different camera as well. So it graded a bit differently. So it was, um, cause I will have a style and how I like to edit it. And because it was a different camera, so I had to work around that. So it's just, just little things like, like that, that make a subtle difference. But if you can, 
it's not essential, but the reason why is it's more essential for me because I put so much effort into the video that they're not just behind the scenes, uh, casual handy cam. They're very well thought out. They're very stylized. And I was actually having this conversation with Mike recently. The behind the scenes video has almost become part of the final product. It has, it's not, mm. it's not almost a behind the scenes video anymore. I almost need someone filming Mike filming me <laughs> to show, to show like the conversations I have with Mike about where I'd like him to put the camera or how I'd like um, it to go from A to B. So it's kind of interesting that the video has now become part of that final product. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about meta BTS, BTS, mm. BTS. Love it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'll try that as an experiment next time. I'll have someone filming Mike, filming me. Oh, yeah, gosh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and with with that teamwork, are you? Do you find that you're generally taking uh, a noticeable creative lead, or do you feel that you that you're working closely enough with people for it to be much more collaborative? Uh, definitely at the start, I'll kind of lay the grassroots of how I've, um, this is the story. This is kind of what I want to get out of it. This is, um, roughly where I'd like, I'm, I will, when we recce the location, I always have at least, uh, my videographer with me. So I, I'm now, it's now at a point where the videographer, Mike has to be with me when we do that recce, because if he's there with me, he can get the shots faster. He can... Um, and then it kind of gives him time to think. Cause we know that when we're pressured for time, it kind of, your creative thinking kind of shrinks a little bit because mm. you got that doubt. So by having Mike come along, I'll give him an idea. I want to start, I want to start here. This would be the next one. And then I want to go over there. What he does in those spaces is then up to him, but I kind of give him an idea of this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. Um, and a tip for people who are working with a videographer, maybe for the first time is, when you're done with a setup, always turn to your videographer and say, are you happy? Do you have everything here? Have you covered enough angles to kind of give the viewers enough context of this is where the light is. This is where I am. This is where they are. Always ask that question before you move on, because if you move on and you get to the edit later, realize you didn't have enough content there to tell that effectively set up, then it's going to be too late. So always turn to, so get, and there are times I will turn to Mike and say, did you get enough? And he'll say, no, I need a couple of shots. I want to get a wide and then another close up. And then that's fine. We'll carry on. And I respect that. And Mike now knows to uh, jump in and maybe say, sorry, Tommy, do you mind just doing that again? Can you pull the camera out your bag again? And I'm hundred percent will do that because I know that it will help tell a more engaging story if, cause he might've missed it. So even if you're a videographer listening, don't be afraid to jump in or have that conversation with the photographer at the start. And cause they will, they obviously they're going to, they're going to appreciate you stepping in rather than just keeping quiet. So yeah, don't mm. afraid to have that conversation because it just helps tell an even better story if you can get all the shots you need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the conversation's taking a sli taken a slightly different um, direction than what than what I started out. But but it's really interesting. And one thing that I will say actually is with you know I, I'm kind of. Uh, sort of half-heartedly and sort of three-quarters heartedly trying to get my my own YouTube channel a bit more uh, a bit more going but it's you know as you all know it takes it takes so much more work than anybody initially thinks about and it's um but 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 there we are and 
that you mentioned the idea of telling the story and we hear about storytelling all the time and mm. you know you've got to tell the story in your in your photography and your you know series of images and all of that kind of stuff and with um uh, doing youtube a bit as i am now one thing which which I've come to realize is that there is an enormous appetite in the photography space for people who will just watch photo shoots. And so, for example, um, I don't know whether you know Sam Elkins on YouTube, who's, uh, I mean, he's, uh, he has a humongous YouTube channel. He's a, you know, uh, commercial editorial and film photographer. I think he's only about 24 or something, a very young guy, but he Oh, has, I think I do know. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. I think I do know. So he's got an enormous following on, on YouTube, hundreds of thousands of people, if not more. And, um, the majority of his videos or certainly a large proportion of them are footage of him doing shoots. You know, he, he will either be uh, shooting the beautiful uh, coastal landscapes in California, or he'll be shooting his extremely attractive friends using, <laughs> using a range of, uh, you know, very high end film and digital cameras, all of this. So, you know, there's a whole kind of lifestyle, um, angle to, to everything he's doing. But at the end of the day, what we're watching on uh, on on videos like that, or fi- I mean, it seems a bit sort of ridiculous to call them videos. It's actual filmmaking. It's beautiful filmmaking. But you're watching him just photograph people, and the the appetite for that. If you if you hunt around on photography YouTube, um, there's tons of it. It's and people will just watch it. It's like mm. it's almost therapeutic to watch mm. other people making photos um, and the people that can, you know, people like you and, and Sam who can make those 10 minute videos, something which, you know, there's a journey going on. Mm. And e- even, even though at its, at its simplest, um, we're really just watching somebody shoot photos for the purpose of making a YouTube video, which is absolutely great. Mm. Um, people love that stuff. And it is, yeah. it is all about storytelling. It is all about preparing the shoot, driving to location, doing the shoot itself, doing the post-processing. And, you know, people get really invested in that kind of thing, including me. I love watching that kind of stuff. But it's because it just tells more of a story than the, than the images, because the images are just part of that journey, part of that story. And that's the beauty of video is you can put your images in a video and you can add music as well. So you're engaging them kinetically, um, as well as with video visually at 24, 25 frames a second, as well as your images. So that this is why video is so powerful, so powerful. And photographers really need to, all photographers need to at least think about or engage the idea of introducing video somewhere, something in their work. doesn't have to be cinematic. doesn't have to be um, shot superbly. I mean, if you take my travel work, everything is shot on a GoPro in auto mode. There's nothing manual about it, but it's always, it's as we all know already, we already know this. It's always the story. It's never about if it's shot in 120 frames a second, you know, that's lovely. It looks nice. But at the end of the day, it's the context. And it's the same with education as well doesn't matter if it's shot on the most expensive cameras. It's all about the context and what you're saying. So with behind the scenes, if you can make it look pretty great, but at the same time, even if it's just the camera set up in a corner, you're, t- you're still telling a story. It's still engaging because mm, absolutely it's part of education. It's it, you call it behind the scenes, but it's 
also partly education because you're watching how they do it. Where do they set up the light? They don't have to say where they've set it up. We can see where they've set it up. So in part, it is education. And I think that's what the number one thing people turn to YouTube for is education. And yeah. behind the scenes is an extension of that. No, absolutely. Let's turn back to pure photography again, if I can call it yeah. that. Yes. Um, and this is a very broad question, but where do you where do you find inspiration for your photography? And I'm sure there's a whole range of things, but where you know where does the inspo come from? Uh, one of my biggest inspirations is definitely uh, Dan Winters. So Dan Winters, what I love about his work and um, from what I've seen in his behind the scenes is he uses a ring flash, which is a flash physically attached to his camera. And the first time I saw that and the painterly quality that it created in his images, I thought, I really, really want to try and invest in that. So Dan Winters is definitely one of them. Um, uh, Joey Lawrence for his travel work. Um, Chris Knight, who also uses a ring flash, actually. Um, I just love the cinematicness. I'm definitely more of a low-key photographer, and I get to express my high-key in my wedding stuff. But for the portrait stuff, it's definitely more low-key stuff. And uh, they, those are some of my favourite photographers. Um, that really inspire me. I really like those guys. Mm -hmm. And when you're um, when you're planning your own shoots, um, again for photography, are you? I mean, how do you prepare prepare for those? Are you are you a mood boarder? Are you are you planning? <laughs> are you planning with the you like a Pinterest addict, or are you sort of in the room planning with uh, with the other people involved? How do you do it? Uh, I'm I'm a a Pinterester, if that's the thing. I'm a uh, we we create the mood board on on uh, on Pinterest, and I think what's interesting is when you ask the model for example to uh, maybe use pinterest quite often they will put images in a mood board and they they're looking at different things and i think it's important and i don't know if you've experienced this as well david is that you kind of need to have that com conversation about why do you like these images is it because you like them because of the lighting the background like it's not enough to just be given some images or show them the images you kind of maybe have to have that communication of okay Sometimes I'll have multiple mood boards for certain things. I'll have a mood board just for the makeup, a mood board just for backgrounds, a mood board just for lighting. And I think separating them just makes everyone sing from the same page. But I'm definitely mm. a, uh, a Pinterester. That's definitely me. Yeah, I use it as well. And I um, j uh, just thinking about this, this planning process, I mean, I um, the way that I tend to come to shoots is I... I will kind of do it instinctively and that's not very helpful if you're working with other people because I, um, you know, I tend to know instinctively the kinds of things that I like and I don't really, because it's just me in my own brain, I, I don't have to kind of break it down. I can kind of think, you know, think things and I, when I see something, I know, I know that I like it, but that isn't very helpful if you have to explain to somebody, or, you know, <laughs> if you're working with other people, it's not very helpful um, to them. And so I, I, uh, the way that I start is with a color, with a color scheme. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to have something to, uh, to to sort of latch onto initially, don't you? And I think it's very um, um, certainly with my own work because I, I I tend to use two or three light setups, which are sort of go to ones for me. Um, and I think it's quite important if you see other work to identify, for example, it's the lighting that I like, or it's the color scheme, or it's the set design, or it's the wardrobe, or, you know, or whatever it might be that, that, that catches your eye. Because, um, 
yeah, certainly speaking personally, I don't often do that. I, I work much more instinctively, which is completely unhelpful to people. Um, no, but that's, if that's the way you work, that's the way you work. And it's, uh, and you're right, having a starting point, I think everyone, you've got to have a starting point to then obviously grow from. There's got to be a reason. Uh, it, it, it might be colour. It might be a theme. It might be a, a, a genre. You know, there will be something, a a, a, a a piece of garment you've got to start from something otherwise where do you grow it's like a like a, a mind map isn't it you you've got the thing the color the theme the garment in the middle and then you grow grow from there so yeah that's a i i, I think that's a i think i could work that way as well for sure but yeah mm. as you right the the uh the other person might not appreciate it so much but i think i could work that way as well yeah, and and coming to the other end of a shoot, um, once the work is done, one thing that I strongly believe in, although I don't find it easy all the time, is soliciting feedback from people. And this is people that aren't in my family or my immediate circle <laughs> of friends, which which always makes it a bit more painful. And um, for me, it do, it definitely does not feel instinctive to do so. Um, I sort of worry that it can come across as being a tiny bit needy or ridiculous. Um, but I, I do find with me that a certain amount of uh, objective critique is useful to help me grow because I find it easy to fall into um, patterns with my work. And, um, you know, on the one hand, you can say that a work has a certain style. You know, in my head, I've got this conflict going on where I'm thinking, does all my work look the same? And is it going to get boring? And, you know, basically I'm actively trying to challenge myself to, to develop all the time. Now, the the enforced lockdown that everybody has had to live under over the last, you know, goodness knows how long I think has been a factor in that. Mm. Uh, what's, what's your view about getting feedback about your own work? And do you ever ask trusted people for it? Yeah, I, um, again, when it comes back to the, uh, we spoke about team. Um, so I would naturally ask the people that I will often use because, because they know my work so well, I feel like they may know my peaks and where, so they might see where I might've fallen short or it could have been better. But at the same time, I do also have a couple of people who aren't in the industry as well, just to kind of get that different perspective. And I do quite like the, uh, Brene Brown trick again, the author Brene Brown, she, uh, does a thing where she has in her purse, she's got like a little one inch by one inch piece of paper in her purse and she's got like five names on it. And those five people are the people who love and she cares for and care for her most. And there's people, some in her industry, some out. And so they're the people you're, you need feedback from the people that know you really well. There's no point getting, I don't believe there's anything to gain from getting feedback from people who have no idea what you do or anything about your work. So if you can go to the people that really care about and really truly love you and know your work well, they're going to give you the most honest feedback. Maybe not your mum, maybe that's too close <laughs> <laughs> or, you, or your partner. But I've got a friend who's very blunt. He's very straight. My friend Andy, he will tell me if it's rubbish or not. And I yeah. need someone like that. Um, and it's nice to have pe that those people in your team. It's no good just having yes men in your team. Yeah, you yeah. can't, you can't develop. You, you need that. So I do welcome it. And there was an example where I was ready to post an image on Instagram and I've got a group chat with, um, a lot of my team. And I said, what do you think of this? And they all said it was not great. <laughs> and, and it was one of those examples. And I'm sure you've been the same David, where it took me forever to color grade it. I wasn't getting a look that I want. And yeah. when they said it was rubbish, 
I didn't post it. I went for a dog walk, came back and started from scratch, did it in five minutes. It looks so much better. I said, what do you think now? They went, yeah, much better. So I needed them to tell me it was rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Often but, it's the things that you work at for ages that basically can end up being a bit of a turkey, can't they? And yeah. things that where it all comes together pretty fast. So, you know, very often the winners. I mean, one thing that you brought up there is um, the the fickle world of sort of social media reception, if you mm. like. And with, um, I'm, uh, the the social media platform that I work the hardest at is, is Instagram. You know, I'm doing my YouTube and, you know, various bits and pieces on Facebook as well. But Instagram is the one that I work hardest at and spend the lot, you know, the most amount of time on. And it's, um, it's it's basically a crapshoot with what you put on there. Stuff that I uh, put on there that I think is absolutely amazing will quite often get a, a reasonably lukewarm response. Mm. And then something which to me is very ordinary mm-hmm. will, you know, will be an off the chart success. And I, do, I don't think there's much kind of rhyme or reason. And we're always kind of told to, you know, content is king and all of this kind of stuff. Mm. But um, re- I sort of feel lost with it sometimes that you, um, you know, the good stuff is often overlooked and the stuff, you know, I think basically if you post photographs of attractive women, you're going to get a lot of likes. And oh, yeah. then, and then f- for anything else, it's going to be hit or miss. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or cats. Generally, yeah, cat cat videos. You want to be, yeah, if you want to have a, a big Instagram account, post pictures of half-naked people or post cat videos. But we yeah. don't really want to do that, do we? Um, but you're right. There is... It can be, it can feel somewhat frustrating when you think an image is going to do well, but at the end of the day, it sh- we all know it shouldn't be a, that mo- it, that shouldn't be the motivation. If you're proud of the image, if you think it's a great image, technically or contextually, if you're proud of it, then that's that's where it should end. Posting it, obviously, post it, but it's um, but it's very easy to uh, associate likes with achievement. Yeah. And it's a very um, slippery slope of uh, getting caught in that trap. Mm. And I've, I've actually, um, and you mentioned lockdown as well, and something that I've only revealed to a, a few people, but um, lockdown was really difficult for me. And because I've not been shooting for so long, it's so easy to fall into that imposter syndrome as well and feeling mm. like you're... You're, you're an outcast. If I'm being brutally honest, like you, when you asked me to do this interview, I was a little bit taken back because I hadn't done anything really that I was really proud of in such a long time. I almost felt like, oh, I don't know if I should be the right person to be asked to do this. But, and it's, it's even led me to um, having some therapy sessions about wow. dealing with this, about this idea of imposter syndrome and yeah, yeah. this strive for perfect perfectionism. And mm. And you mentioned again, social media and social media, you, everyone just compares their behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel, show reel. Mm. Um, and perfectionism doesn't exist. And we need to say, I, I, I have to repeat that to myself. Perfectionism doesn't exist. It's much better to aim for a healthy conscientiousness than an unhealthy perfectionism, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, there's, I know that I'm going to forget the, the actual saying, but it's something to the, to the effect of, um, you know, trying to achieve perfectionism all the time just means that you never get anything done. I've forgotten what the exact phrase Mm. is, but always, uh, 
trying to achieve the perfect outcome very often means that you get zero done because you can't engage with the process because you're too um you're too worried about what the outcome is going to be and then you you know at the end of the day you've got nothing done you feel like shit um you know and it's it's horrible but the the, the stuff that you were saying about um you know the mental health effects of uh of the whole lockdown process where you know wherever people are in the world i think uh, whatever's been going on, the people have been suffering in that way. You know, me, no exception. It's been terrible for absolutely everybody for, you know, financial reasons as well as all the the other kind of creative things. Um, and I, I completely hear what you're saying about, you know, when you have to pick up a camera for the first time after six months of no shooting, um, that is a that is a difficult thing. And you think, have I still got it? Can I still do it? It, you know, is the mask going to slip? It, it, whatever that might be. And it's, just, you know, it's, it's not funny at all, is it? And it took, you know, I'm, sh- I'm shooting regularly again now. Things are back, not exactly back into full swing, but, mm. uh, you know, I'm uh, moving in that direction. No, no worries at all. But it, um, yeah, the first, the first few shoots after, you know, after so long without doing anything, we're just absolutely terrible. It's um, no, it's been awful for everybody that I've spoken to. That I is in that is in uh, you know some creative business or whatever is saying the same kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I had to, I, I had to triple check. I had all my batteries. Triple check. You had uh, all the triggers, and you you just doubt yourself. But I bet. Like me, David, I bet it's the th- it's the um what's it's the it's the build up that's the that's worse. Like thinking about something is ten times worse than actually doing it. And I bet yeah. that after like ten minutes in, you were slowly getting back in your stride and wondering what was all that about. And I've I was exact same. I did a I did a shoot in London, and I I was. I felt comfort in the fact that one of the band members I had photographed when he was in a previous band. So I I had a bit of comfort there. Um, But he also said, (laughs) and again, my, this is like mental health hitting me when he said, we hired you because we knew you'd do a good job. Now I know, now I know (laughs) that they're, I know they're trying to be nice, but it doesn't, it wasn't a compliment to me because then it's, it's living up to their expectation of what they think I'm going to achieve for them. And that, that can play on my mind as well. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think, and if you, I don't know, I mean, when people say you're only as good as your last shoot or your last social media, whatever it is, or whatever it might be, I mean, that, that it does pile on the pressure, doesn't it, to, 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 to keep things moving. But I think, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure the person that said that to you, what what they really meant was they meant it as a compliment. But I know that it's inside. You're sort of thinking, "Oh my God, can I actually deliver?" Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I did my first my first location job two, uh, two weeks ago for the first time in well over a year. So I had to pack up my gear. Um, I was shooting publicity photos for a professional pianist, so I went to a concert hall, and um, and I was thinking. Can I can I still do it? I hadn't shot outside of my actual studio in well over a year, mm. and um, you know I, I definitely felt the pressure. I mean, it was fine. You know, you you triple check everything as you said. It's kit checks, it's battery checks, it's all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it, you know, and what? But once you start working, the 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 shots come, and um, you know, it, mm. it's fine. Of course, it is because we because we've been doing it for a long time. But yeah. yeah, I know what you're saying. It's um. Yeah, just need to keep it all moving, don't we? Um, 
I think it's I think it's almost like a muscle. Like when you go to, if you go to the gym regularly, and you know, you, it, it's a slow it's a slow inc, uh, incline to achieving your fitness goal. But let's just say that I, I don't know you 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 go running every other day, um, and then after three weeks you're in a good spot. But isn't it strange how you only need to be away from the gym or not running for a week or two weeks, and you've gone right back down? It's so easy to fall back down, mm. and I kind of almost. Well, it makes me, it gives me comfort, but I kind of uh, compare it to the creative process as well. So if you yeah. don't do it for a long time, you fall right back down to where you thought you started, where you think that you're, you're not good enough anymore. So it's just like a muscle. And what mm. it, someone, someone said to me, um, I, I keep shooting because it keeps my batting average up. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a good way to view it, isn't it? I think even if you, you know, even if there are a few shoots where it's a bit of a turkey, or you know, it's fine but not your best work, it's really just it's really just getting the sessions in and getting you know getting mm. back into practice, isn't it? Um, I mean, that's that that's really really true. And speaking of um, you know, now that things are moving, do you have any big plans for the rest of twenty twenty one or twenty even looking into twenty twenty two? Now that our part of the world is opening yeah. up a little bit more. Well, last year I started a project called A Portrait Of. It's a YouTube series. I've only done a couple of episodes, but it's my new biggest passion project. And it does take a long time. And the premises is that we not only do a photo shoot, not only do we have a behind the scenes video, but the now extra caveat is on the same day, we interview the person as well. And we marry all of that up. And that combines all of my loves. There's obviously photography, there's cinematic video um, production quality that to output. And then we have uh, a documentary interview element to it as well, where we really engage and we really know and we hear it from the horse's mouth about a story or something they want to share. So some mm. of my previous work has been um, speaking with my friend Holly, who's been deaf all of her life. She speaks about overcoming and the difficulty she has and um how that's given us strength. And then we also did last October before we went into lockdown two, I interviewed and photographed my friend Hazel, who was supposed to get married, unfortunately didn't, um, ended her relationship. They both ended the relationship, but she still had this dress, amazing 1920s dress. And she said, um, I still really want to shoot in it because I was supposed to shoot her wedding. She said, I've, I still really want to get some shots in it. And the last thing I wanted to do, though, was because there was so much meaning behind this shoot, I I didn't want to just put the images online and people assume it was just a bridal shoot, quote unquote. Mm, there was yeah, so yeah. much more to this. So when I asked her, would you be happy to be interviewed? I thought she was going to say no and would have understood. But she said yes. She said, I think it would be a good thing. So moving forward, I want to do more of these kind of projects where we interview real people with real stories real context, just as much context as I can squeeze into a video mm. and photography as I can. I want to do that. I'm concentrating more on weddings. I'm finally going to be uh, picking up a new camera that will be geared more towards uh, wedding photography because it is the thing that's uh, making me the most money. I've got a mortgage now. I'm married and we're thinking of starting a family soon. So I'm mm -hmm. now thinking more seriously financially. So that that's those are my biggest things moving forward. More a portrait of series on my YouTube, more tutorials and concentrating more actually on wedding photography moving forward. No, amazing. And, and finally, where can people find you online? 
If you want to find me online, you can find me on YouTube. Just type in Tommy Reynolds or on Instagram at Tommy Reynolds 89, also on Twitter. Um, and if you want to jump on board with the education, I've got a workshop happening on the 4th of July in London. You can go to TommyReynolds.training to find out more, but I also do online Zoom sessions as well um, during the pandemic or one-to-one uh, workshops as well if you want a more tailored one-to-one experience. That is amazing. Tommy Reynolds, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, David. Always a pleasure to have a chat with you and have a catch up. 